with the close of Revelation 18, this worldly system represented by Babylon the Great has been completely and thoroughly judged by a holy and righteous God. Wickedness receives her due recompense. Evil finally meets her match. Justice rules the day. The reign of man that began the moment Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit is at last, finally, brought to an end. In his vision of this future day, in Revelation 18, verse 8, John, he sums up the scene. He says, therefore her plagues will come and one day. Death and mourning and famine will result. And she, th- this entire system, will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. As I noted in our previous study, the description provided in this text isn't some type of global economic collapse. Like John's not describing a stock market crash. Instead, what he's relaying for us, what he's saying, is that the day is coming when in one day, absolutely everything this world has been built upon, everything this world holds dear, everything mankind has built for himself will be destroyed and brought to ruin by the hand of God. God's judgment of this world will be sudden, swift, and complete. Now, diving back into our narrative, and one of the things you should always keep in mind is that there were no chapter and verse breaks and you know, John's original writing. We've added those things later uh, for reference, you know, for, for kind of reference sake. So just within the narrative, Babylon has been destroyed. Chapter 19, verse 1, just moving right into this, John says, after these things, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Now for starters, chapter 19 begins with a a shift in scene that provides really an interesting contrast, an intentional contrast. While for two chapters, an angel has carried John away in the spirit to show him the fall of moral and societal Babylon, John opens, after these things, after I've seen these things, after these things have been completed, the world has been judged, what happens? John instantly finds himself back in the heavenly space. He's in the heavenly scene. And what what does he say? He says he hears. The first thing that catches his attention is a noise, a sound. This hearing of a great multitude, he says. Doing what? Erupting in praise. With the destruction of Babylon, heaven erupts in praise. You 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 could add in truth... That after these things, like this transitional phrase in chapter 19, could kind of even be broad, uh, more broadly applied beyond the book of Revelation. Like, after the entire story arc of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 3, this whole plan of redemption, chapter 18 closes, there's a finality to it, and after all of that, which includes Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jesus and Moses, after all of this, after all of these things, notice that the reaction to Babylon's demise, John records the reaction of the sinful world. So Babylon falls, 
But in the previous chapter, John says that in reaction to that, verse 18, that they cried out, so the world cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? So they threw dust on their heads and they cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Uh, To Babylon's demise, the world mourns. But there's a contrast to heaven, right? Like the contrast presented in the first verse of chapter 19 of the heavenly reaction to the same scene. It's, it's, it's designed to be stark and profound. As the world mourns the loss of this evil system that has always been in rebellion against God, all of heaven breaks out in celebration. You know, back in the Revelation 6, with the opening of of the fifth seal judgment. The folks that had been martyred for their faith during the tribulation, their faith in Jesus, they cried out. I'll I'll read it for you. They said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, Lord? Well, the final judgment of this world at the end of chapter 18 has answered their question. They have now seen it. They've witnessed it. There's a conclusion to it. Now, imagine the heavenly scene, like what John is trying to relay. Being very similar to, let's say, the ninth inning of the seventh game of the World Series. Like, your team is winning. There are two outs. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. With the 0-2 pitch, the fans in the stadium... Everyone gathered in the local bars and restaurants, the masses watching at home. With that pitch, everyone holds their breath, the collective breath. The batter takes a a final swing, right? A final mighty cut, and he misses. And in a moment like that, the game is over. Your team wins, and instantly, you can see it, you've seen pictures of this, everyone jumps from their seats, beer goes flying, I mean, nachos are spilt, like, the, everyone erupts in celebration. This has happened. This is the moment we've been waiting for. We were longing for it. That's what's happening in heaven. This is what John is describing. After these things, the world is mourning, they lost. Heaven erupts in celebration. The game is over. God has proved victorious. Heaven explodes. And what do they say? Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. It really is an awesome moment. Righteousness gets the W. You know, akin to our, akin to the Hebrew word, hallelujah, which is frequently used throughout the Psalms. This Greek word we find here, alleluia, it's presented only four times in the entire New Testament, all of which occur in this one chapter. Like, not only is this word alleluia unique to the Bible, but it's absent in virtually all other ancient Greek literature. It's a foreign word. In fact, some scholars believe it's such a foreign word that what we may have recorded here is the heavenly language. Let me explain. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, the Apostle Paul mentions how the gift of tongues would frequently manifest in his own life, his own private prayer life, 
enabling him to express his heart to the Lord in a way no longer limited by the constraints of human language. Now, what's interesting and fascinating, honestly, about this is that Paul notes how he would frequently speak in the tongues of men and angels. The language of angels? What does that sound like? What does that even look like? You know, it could be, and and I I gravitate towards this, this perspective, that John hears heaven erupt. Alleluia, which is an angelic tongue. It's a word completely foreign to this world. So John, he hears it, and he's kind of forced to figure out, like he has to invent a word, a, a way to replicate the sound, to also connect it to its meaning. Like this could be the only word heavenly of the heavenly language we have recorded, period. It's, it's to me, blows my mind. Now, the word alleluia, closely related to hallelujah, implies that, that we can reason it means to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, but praise the Lord without restraint. It's the idea. You remember the old VBS song, you know, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, praise ye the, it's actually a duplicate, praise ye the Lord and hallelujah is the same thing, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord, it's the same thing. That being said, the way that hallelujah is used in this chapter indicates it's as much an invitation to praise God as it is a declaration of praise. Like, think of the word this way. I'm praising God, now you praise Him too. I love it. And why should we praise Him? Well, the multitude of heaven answers. They said, for salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Now, in the Greek, there is a definite article in front of each of these particular words. The definite article, the, it's not translated, but it's there. Like the text actually reads, not just salvation or glory, honor, and power. It's the salvation and the glory and the honor and the power belong to the Lord our God. You see, Jesus is worthy of our praise for no other reason than who he simply is. Who he is demands our praise. He is our salvation. It's not that Jesus offers salvation. He is our salvation. And Jesus exists all glory, or or better translated, splendor, as well as honor. Jesus is the most precious. He is the all-powerful. All might belong to the Lord our God. Verse 2. For, uh, so this is the reason now for the first alleluia. For, True and righteous are his judgments. Meaning, the judgments of God are intrinsically genuine, fair, justified. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Again, the context of all that is in the previous two chapters. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And and that image, forever and ever, and ever and ever, it presents an eternal, eternally lasting destruction. You know, in his model prayer, which is recorded for us in Matthew 6, 
Jesus instructed his disciples to include a, a petition. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven. There is a line, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Like understand, as a central element to our faith in Jesus should be this future expectation. Your kingdom come. Like knowing that the remedy to this fallen world is not Republicans or Democrats or it's not the United States or the United Nations. Like the ultimate remedy, the fix, the solution to all the muck and the mire we see in the world around us is the coming kingdom of Jesus. It's Jesus ruling and reigning. That's when we have a peace that surpasses understanding. He is the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords. Knowing that it's his coming that's the solution. As Christians, we should live, again, according to the very prayer we pray. We should live today with a very real anticipation and desire, a longing for God to bring his kingdom to this earth. It and it alone is the fix. With the destruction of Babylon, all of heaven is filled with praise. Why? Because this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer prayed by saints and Christians throughout generations is finally answered. The wickedness of man has come to an end. Evil has been purged. The kingdom of man has been scraped from the earth. Why? in order to give way for a new societal framework, a new way of living, the kingdom of God. And at this point, where we are here, at verse 3, there is nothing else needed. No other prophecy to be fulfilled. Uh, no other prerequisites to be accomplished. Nothing at this juncture is restricting the second coming of Jesus. At last, the time has come. Verse 4, And the 24 elders... And the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. And again, we have Alleluia. Now, these elders and the living creatures were first introduced uh, and described by John back in Revelation 4. You can reference, you can reference them uh, back in those studies. John adds, he says, A voice then comes from the throne, which is probably an angel, saying or declaring, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him or revere him, both small and great. John says, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. So John is, is now going to describe the sound made by this collective voice. He says, there was this voice of a great multitude. It was like the sound of many waters. So imagine this, the sound being like a great waterfall. It was as the sound of mighty thunderings. And what was being said? Again, it, it was understood, articulated, saying, Alleluia. For... And now, again, the reason for this alleluia. The Lord God, the, the Kyrios, uh, the Theos, the King and God, omnipotent. And that word means the one who holds sway over all things reigns. I, I love that. The Lord, alleluia, for the Lord God, omnipotent reigns. Or, literally in the Greek, has taken up the reins. Continuing. This voice declares, let us be glad. It's, it's kind of a military term. Let us salute and rejoice or be exceedingly happy and give him glory or hold him in high regard for, and again, the, the reason for the reaction, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come 
And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness, the righteous acts of the saints. Now this phrase that we have, the righteous acts of the saints, is, is a bit misleading. Because it seems to allude to the idea that our works, or our actions, the actions of the saints, somehow play a factor and our righteousness. Like, we know that can't be the case. And I'll give you an easy proof text for that. The prophet Isaiah, he wrote in the sixth verse of his 64th chapter, he said, but we, he says, are like an unclean thing in all of our righteousness. Like, the best we have to offer are like filthy rags. Again, this is where English struggles to present an adequate translation from the original Koine Greek, the ancient Greek. Like in the text, the neutered noun, dikioma, it has no equivalent in English. Like at best, at best, we can translate this word, the righteous acts, as the righteousnesses. <laughs> like there's not, a, there's not an actual English word for this it's it's righteousness is 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 like multiple plurals to the same idea like what john is describing here and this phrase the righteous acts of the saints or the righteousnesses of the saints is he's describing not necessarily the activity of the bride he's describing her status like this bride is totally righteous, dude. Verse 9. Then he said to me, so, so uh, for context, this would be the same angel, likely introduced to us at the beginning of, of chapter 17. So this angel says to me, right. Which kind of gives the idea that John, he, what he's seeing, he's so like, like he's been told from the very beginning of the book to write everything he's seeing. But there are, and we'll see this in the last few chapters, John gets so overwhelmed by certain things, he's like, where an angel or Jesus or someone else has to be like, bro, write. Like, <laughs> get back to it. So this angel like, John, write. Get back. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And again, John's so overwhelmed by everything he's seeing. He, he says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you don't do that. Better translated as, don't do that. And then the angel explains why. And he says, I'm, I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. And as a little wonky, can be translated like I serve, and I serve specifically those who follow Jesus. And then he says, worship God. Worship God. For why? Why should you worship God? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Or, or basically the angel is saying that since everything happening here was about Jesus, he should be worshipped and no one else. Now in verse 7, we, we read heaven declare. And again, look back. <clears throat> Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for... And then there's an event referenced. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come, 
and his wife has made herself ready. And now in verse 9, we have this angel telling John, blessed or literally happy are those who are called or have been invited, included in this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now there are some scholars who see the marriage supper of the Lamb as kind of being the heavenly party that takes place during the seven years of tribulation on the earth. I should add that the majority of scholars hold some kind of variation of this view. And yet, if this were the case, the placement of the reference of the marriage supper of the Lamb coming right before the second coming of Jesus Christ makes that way of reading it very strange to me. Again, we read, John is clear, the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't been going on. It's now come. It's arrived. We've reached the time of it. Like something long anticipated has arrived. Now, in order to unpack what occasion that John is referring to as being the marriage supper of the Lamb, and and therefore the timing of the event itself, I need to first define the characters that are involved in this marriage supper, And then I need to explain the process of getting married in ancient Hebrew culture. Like those are two components that will help you understand what's being described with this phrase, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now with all of the imagery we've noted, described, discussed, established in Revelation, it's very easy for us to say, and we can be safe by it, that Jesus is the Lamb, okay? Capital L goes all the way back to chapter 4, chapter 5. Jesus is the lamb, or, or in context to the imagery being described, Jesus is the bridegroom. This is the marriage supper of the lamb of Jesus. Now, the pressing question is, who is his wife? Now, there is a school of thought that contends that this is a reference to the Hebrew people. And while it's true that in the Old Testament, Israel's relationship with God is described using marital terminology. Never once is marital terminology ever used regarding the Jewish people and their relationship with Jesus. That never happens. Now since this is the wife of the Lamb, we can safely say that this is not Israel. Because we have, we have no link to establish that. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul actually provides us an answer to this question, who is the wife of the Lamb, and an exhortation that he gives married men. Let me read you a section that Paul writes, beginning with verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, for just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says, this is a great mystery. I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul builds on this idea of the church being the bride of Christ. 
he, he writes, he says, I have betrothed you to one husband, again writing to the church, that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ Jesus. Like scripturally, the Bible places the church, of which we're included, as having a different relational context. We have a different relationship with Jesus than the Old Testament saints who come before, or, for that matter, the tribulational saints that come afterwards. The church is unique, special. We are, as the Bible says, His bride. Now, one component to this section of Scripture that's often overlooked is how the marriage supper followed the marriage ceremony. Again, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And keep in mind that the marriage supper follows the ceremony. It doesn't come before. Like consider how the marriage supper of the Lamb will include Jesus the groom and who? His wife. Now, we know her to be the church, but it's interesting that the word wife is used here and not what you would expect. Bride. You know, the bride of Christ. In fact, this is the only time in the entire Bible that the church is called Jesus' wife and not the bride of Christ. Aside from this, the great multitude declares what? The great multitude declares how she has made herself ready as it was granted for her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Like the implications of the bride, now referred to as Jesus' wife, with her preparations for the marriage supper being presented in a past tense, leads to the notion, and this is the point we're driving home, this marriage supper indeed follows the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage, because again, this is not the bride, this is the wife. The bride is clearly the wife. Now, in order to unpack when this event occurs and what particular supper, what, what this entails, a little background into the process of matrimony within Hebrew culture is warranted. I'm going to use some Hebrew terms this morning. I am not a Jew, <laughs> nor do I speak Hebrew. I will do my best to pronounce these Hebrew words to the best of my God-given ability, but don't hold it against me if I butcher them. Within Hebrew culture, ancient Hebrew culture, Jewish weddings, there were three very distinct phases or parts. First, there was what was called the Shadukim. The Shadukim was a prearrangement that was made between families that their kids would get married. This was a prearranged marriage, the Shadukim. In Hebrew culture, parents didn't allow such a big decision as to who you were going to spend the rest of your life with up to adolescent whims. With that in mind, I have three kids, so the Adams family is open for business. We can talk later. Well, I don't want to wade too deep into matters of theological debate or controversy. Again, the whole marriage begins with a prearrangement, the shadukum. How cool is it is to think about that as a Christian, the Bible is clear that you were chosen. You were chosen by God to have a relationship with His Son. Like you were picked, prearranged. 
Again, I don't want to get all controversial, but I mean Romans 8, verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he glorified. Further evidence of this can be found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. In Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to his good pleasure of his will, to the praise of of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Like how incredible it is to think that God called you to be the bride of his son, (laughs) actually knowing you. Like, it wasn't as though God, like, did this early before he really knew who you were going to be, right? And then he kind of, like, has, over the course of some time, a bit of buyer's remorse. Like, man, if I had known Zach was going to be that, I would have never picked him or chose him or called him. As the angel declares, though, in verse 9, blessed, happy, blessed, are those, or or, or anyone who's called, included, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friend, with this in mind, I do need to say this. If you are uncertain whether or not you were predestined by God to have a relationship with His Son, Jesus, all you have to do is give your life to Him this morning, (laughs) and all the uncertainty will be gone. The shadukim, an arrangement's made. The second part of the marriage process arrived the moment that the kids finally reach the appropriate marrying age. At this point, you would have, again, this second phase that was known as the erusun. This was the formal, official engagement period. Uh, Historically, it was called the betrothal in order to legally bind this agreement that had been reached years earlier by families, the mohair, or or the purchase price for the bride, would now be paid by the father of the groom. The dowry, as we would say in in more Anglo circles. And once that transaction's completed, the mohair transferred, the purchase price satisfied. Once the transaction's complete, The bride and the groom are officially 100% married. In fact, they would, to separate, would have to get a certificate of divorce at this point. They are as married as you can be. However, the union is not consummated yet, and both the bride and the groom have to remain apart for a time. They're rusin. The woman was required to remain under her father's roof, authority and care, until the groom had prepared an adequate dwelling place. Which, by the way, in ancient Hebrew culture, would have just been an extension to his father's home. So he's got to build an an extension to the house that they're going to, to, to live in, have kids in, grow up in, right? Woman in her father's house. The groom is preparing a place, extension of his father's home. By the way, for reference, this is why Mary... Think back to the Christmas story. This is why Mary is constantly mentioned as being Joseph's betrothed virgin wife. 
Like they're legally married, but they haven't slept together. They haven't started living together when she turns up pregnant, which kind of complicates the whole thing. Now consider for a moment the purchase price, the mohair. The purchase price paid by God, the father of the groom, in order for you to be the bride of Christ. Like not only was there a prearrangement made, but then the father of the groom, to seal the deal, he satisfies the mohair. He pays a purchase price for you to be part of the bride. You know, in Romans 6, 23, we read that the wages of sin is death. Like death is the debt that you owed. How amazing is it that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, the mohair, the purchase price, his sacrifice on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They're consistent with this marital tradition. Knowing that Jesus would be leaving his disciples behind, Jesus gives them this interesting promise in John 14. Let me read it for you. He's telling them that he's going to be going away. But he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Not only is the mohair satisfied, but Jesus, the groom, is preparing a home. In his father's house. Lastly, so the third phase is that this betrothal period would be followed by the third, again, final stage that was known as the nishun. Now, the Hebrew word nishun, it means to take. That's what the word means, to take. Now, the bride knew in the betrothal period that it was going to take a little time for the groom to get his stuff together probably a year or so, to make the proper arrangements before he could come and take her to himself. She wouldn't know, though, the day. She wouldn't know the hour. She would have an approximate idea seasonally, but she wouldn't know, which meant that the bride would have to live every day as though her groom was coming at any moment. There was this anticipation. In fact, by the way, Culturally, the groom wouldn't know either when the time is right. When he finally gets the extension done, it was the the father of the groom that would have to do an inspection and be like, okay, you're good, go get her. That's how it would happen. Interestingly, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, of that day and hour when the groom comes for the bride, no one knows but my father only. Interesting. The groom preparing a place, waiting for the father to say, go get your bride. The bride, not knowing when, excited, living in anticipation, always being ready. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, he taught a parable that perfectly illustrates all of this. It's a little lengthy, but let me read it for you. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But 
The bridegroom was delayed, so they slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They weren't ready. But the wise answered, No, lest there shouldn't be enough for us. You go and sell and buy for yourselves. So while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. The door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came. They said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. So the whole application, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, what a glorious day. When the moment arrived, when the Father turns to the Son and says, Go get your bride. And as you would expect, I mean, there's no dithering on the part of the groom. He's excited. Boom, he springs forth into action. Like there would be no delay. Now traditionally, as he approached, there'd be a fanfare. There'd be a blast of the shofar, the ram's horn. And it, that blast would indicate to the bride that the groom was coming. The time had arrived. The groom would then pick up his bride he would bring her back to his father's house, and it's at that point they would have a ceremony with the entire community. Writing in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes a yet still future day when Jesus comes to retrieve his bride, the church. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, the blast of the shofar, letting the bride know your groom is coming. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now finally, the bride, the groom, they're together. The father's house. There's a ceremony. The ceremony, the actual wedding ceremony, culturally, would take place under what was known as the hopa. The hopa was a decorative marriage canopy where the bride and groom would finalize their marital vows to each other before God and in the presence of friends and family. This custom is why we often have arches also in our weddings. The hopa, this, this decorative marriage canopy. Following the ceremony, but, and this is important, before the party popped, the bride and groom would go from the Hopa to a secluded room that was known as the Yishu. Now, all the guests are waiting. Right? They're all waiting. But it would be in this secluded room, the Yishu, that the couple, this, this, the bride and the groom, would have their first meal together as a husband and wife. They, they had been fasting all day. This is a private moment. They could share a meal Additionally, this would be the moment that the husband and wife, the bride and the groom, would also consummate the marriage. This yishu would be guarded by a witness. Certain circles, there was customs that after consummation, the witness would have to go in to confirm that the bride had been a virgin. Talk about awkward. But there's this, this special time in the yishu. And it was only after this this time with one another, this intimate season, that the bride and groom 
are ready to officially begin their new lives together. As one could expect, the bride takes a moment and has to ready herself. Together then with her groom, they exit the Yishu. They publicly present themselves for the first time to the, the wedding party as, as not bride and groom, but as husband and wife. She's no longer his bride. She is officially his wife. And as you can imagine, there's an instant eruption of applause from everyone at the banquet, the banquet of guests. But this celebration quickly transitions into a feast known as the Shuda. So after leaving the Yishu, there's this feast, the Shuda, which would include a formal supper, followed by music and dancing. Today, these festivities last only a few hours, but in ancient times, these wedding celebrations could last an entire week. Now, when John refers to the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is likely the event in question. The church, a bride chosen by God, a bride who's had her mohair officially paid in full by the work of Jesus on the cross, a bride officially betrothed to Jesus, who has already one day heard the trumpet sound, the groom at last comes for his bride, the rapture of the church. There's a ceremony in heaven we call the Bema Seat. And from that point forward, for a period of seven years, Jesus, he enters the Yeshu of heaven just with his bride, just with us. See, during this time, John tells us that it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Like, amazingly, the garments of the bride, they're not earned by the bride. They're bestowed to the bride by the groom, by Jesus. It's the loving groom who clothes his bride in righteousness. And while there is this private season following the rapture, there is a day that is coming when it's time for the bride and groom to publicly present themselves to the world as husband and wife and start a life together. You see, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the second coming of Jesus Christ with who? Us, his wife, no longer just a bride. Jesus, you and I, exit the issue of heaven, and together we make a public appearance. And what happens? A celebration begins. A party that will last for a thousand years. That's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah, in fact, it was the Feast of Tabernacles which was the last feast on the Jewish calendar that was designed to be a yearly rehearsal for this moment. In Zechariah 14, verse 16, the prophet says that during these thousand years while Jesus is ruling and reigning, he says, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Of all the feasts, there's only one that continues, and it is the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the celebration of completion. Now, in closing, and this is kind of the whole intention of, of this morning, one of the great misconceptions 
regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to next Sunday, is that it will be apocalyptic. That's a misconception. Sure, it's true. We'll see this next Sunday. It will be a very bad day for a few people. For Satan, not a good day. For the false prophet, the Antichrist, also bad day. For anyone with the mark of the beast, bad day. For anyone that, that actually tried to make war against Jesus, also bad day. Like There will be a bad day for some, but it is silly to think that any of that is going to take any time for Jesus to accomplish. Again, the, the prophet Zechariah writes, he says, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the people. So this is how it happens. He says, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Boom. Like, it's not like there's a battle. There's not like there's a conflict. It's not like this takes any time at all. Jesus looks, wills it, it's done, and what happens? We party. Like, there's a party. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything is new. You see, the judgment of the second coming, the judgment that happens on this day, is absolutely entirely incidental in comparison to what the day and its context represents. The second coming initiates what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding celebration, a feast, music, and dancing, and singing. This is the day that Jesus finally returns to this earth with his wife, the church, and he establishes his kingdom on this earth. And what follows is the greatest celebration in the history of humanity. And we will look at those things next Sunday. So Father, Lord, I thank you for your word and what it says to us.